Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. chapter 10. And as you're turning to Hebrews chapter 10, I want to read the opening paragraph to a book that kind of sets the stage for what we're going to be talking about this morning. Jack and Grace met through a mutual friend. From day one, they seemed to be the perfect match. Grace was everything Jack had always wanted. She was beautiful, outgoing, and caring always there when Jack needed her. For the first five months, they were inseparable. Jack could hardly think of anything but grace. He didn't need to look further. He told friends, she's the one. Now almost three years have passed. Jack still enjoys the comfort and familiarity of being with grace, but the spark is gone. Grace's flaws seem more obvious. He's not sure he finds her as attractive as he once did, and he's beginning to resent all the time she wants to spend with him. One night, when she asks if they can define the nature of their relationship, Jack blows up. We're together, aren't we? He asks angrily. Why isn't that enough for you? Obviously, Jack isn't ready for commitment. And it's unclear if he ever will be. Have you ever been in a relationship like this? I'm writing this book because I believe God has something better for you. He wants you in a relationship defined by both passion and commitment. But before you take hold of this wonderful plan, you need to know something about this couple. There are millions of Jacks walking around today. And grace isn't a girl. Grace is a church. It's from Josh Harris's book, Stop Dating the Church. Fall in love with the family of God. Stop dating the church. Kelly Bean is a young woman from Portland. She's a writer, she's an activist, she's a community organizer. She's written a new book that's just come out. And here's the title of her book, How to Be a Christian Without Going to Church, The Unofficial Guide to Alternative Forms of Christian Community. And she opens her book by talking about sitting on her orange cushy chair, sipping coffee on Sunday morning and loving Jesus and not feeling guilty about it. And she says she used to look down upon those that only came to church on Christmas and Easter, but now she considers herself one of them. She proudly calls herself a non-goer. Here's her main point in the book. She says the great news is that it's possible to be a Christian and not go to church, but by being the church, remain true to the call of Christ. And she says if you don't go to church, you shouldn't feel guilty. You shouldn't feel convicted because, after all, you really shouldn't listen to preaching. Preaching's not that big of a deal. The the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper, that's not that big of a deal. You can worship Jesus by drinking a beer with your friends. You can worship Jesus by meditating. You can worship Jesus by singing a hymn in the shower. You really don't need to go to church. And then she starts to talk about how she's nervous about this idea because she wonders how she's going to raise her kids not going to church. But then she said this statement that really kind of got my blood boiling. This is what she said. Kids really don't need to be taught propositional truths. They need a way of life and a community of belonging. 
Is that true? Do kids not really need propositional truths? They just need to kind of swallow the postmodern spirit of our age where everything goes? Can you kind of just not go to church and not listen to sermons and not participate in the Lord's Supper and not really be part of the body of Christ and actually call yourself a healthy Christian? You see, we live in a very privatized, individualistic, consumeristic Americanized version of Christian spirituality. And I would say this, in the wake of all of the internet and podcast and satellite and all the technology we have, it's actually causing people to be more isolated and more fractured and more alienated and not bringing them together as a church family. So we're continuing this sermon series. We're taking a break from Genesis for a few weeks on what it means to be a healthy Christian. And we've been looking at some distinguishing marks of a healthy Christian. And the first one we looked at is that you're saturated in the Scripture. You, you read the Bible. You, you take the Bible in. You live under the authority of the Bible. You spend daily time in the Bible. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Last week, we saw that a healthy Christian is a person who prays. You're persistent in prayer. And I gave you guys that acronym, P-R-A-Y. Praise, repent, ask, yield. It's kind of a model to help you spend daily time in prayer. And so, so the Bible is your authority. You live it and you pray, it's pretty basic stuff. But now we come to our third characteristic this morning, and it's this. A healthy Christian is active in attendance. Is active in attendance. Listen to King David in Psalm 122, verse 1. King David says this, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, back in that day, it was the temple. And David would take his family and they would walk up the steps to the temple and they would gather in the temple and there would be singing of hymns, there would be the reciting of psalms, there would be the reading of the law of God, and it was a glorious worship service. And David in that time is saying, it brought me great joy, great excitement to go to church, if you will, in the Old Testament. And I wonder if we have that same attitude, if that would describe you. Are you excited to get up on Sunday morning to come to the house of the Lord, to be among God's people because you love Jesus and you you love other people and you want to be part of what God's doing as a church family. Do you find joy in that? So what I want to do this morning is I want to give seven, that's a good biblical number. It's not random, it's, it's, it's a biblical number. Seven blessings or seven teachings or seven, some maybe warnings, seven issues related to why it's important for you to be actively involved in the life of the church especially on Sunday morning as far as being a part of the worship service, active in attendance. Why should you joyfully want to be active in worshiping God together as a church? That's a mark of a healthy Christian. Here's the first one, and it's the most important. Being active in church is commanded. We could just probably stop right there, but let's look and see what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 10. I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Now, we're coming into Hebrews in the middle of the book. The entire book of Hebrews is one long sermon that the writer is, is preaching to a congregation of Jewish Christians that are tempted to revert back to Judaism, to fall back into Judaism, to, to walk away from the faith. And so he's giving strong exhortations. He's giving strong warnings. And we're really coming into the middle of the book, and we're really coming into the middle of three strong exhortations that he's giving the, the church here. Three strong warnings. So let's pick up in verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers, 
Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, here's the first one, let us corporately as a body, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's first of all saying, let's just hold fast to Jesus Christ as our Savior. Let's hold fast to the fact that he is the one that provided salvation for us through his blood. Let's hold fast to that. Let's make sure we don't abandon who Christ is and what his sacrifice is. And then we come to verse 23. Let us, it's the second command here, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. Second command, let's hold fast to our teaching. Let's hold fast to theology. Let's hold fast to to the Bible. Let's hold fast to the faith. Let's make sure Jesus is preeminent. Let's make sure we hold fast to the faith. Okay, and then he gets to the third admonition, and this is where I really want us to focus. Verses 24 and 25. Let us, corporately as a body, Let us, let all of us, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to make sure we truly understand what he's saying, especially in verses 24 and 25. Because the grammar in the original Hebrew, we we can't quite translate it as accurately as we could in English translation, so I'm going to kind of give you what the, the Greek text tells us here. But I want you to notice, first of all, that he says, let us, let us, meaning it's not just one or two people, it's the entire body of Christ. Let us, and literally, it says there, let us consider one another. Let us pay attention to one another. Let us look out for one another. Let us keep a sharp eye on one another. Let us care for one another. It's very similar to what Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So the main command that the writer of Hebrews says here is is look out for one another. Pay attention to one another. Be, Be focusing on one another. And so the question is, okay, how do you do that? How do you look out for one another? How do you pay attention to one another? How how do you watch out for one another? How do you care for one another? Well, he gives three ways. The first is positive, the second is negative, and the third is positive. Here's the first command he says. Stir one another up to love and good, and good deeds. Let us consider, that word consider means let's look out for each other, how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Uh, the word stir up there means to motivate, to light a fire, to encourage to, to, to come alongside another person, really to motivate and encourage them to love and good works. And, and let's just be real honest. How, how often are we lazy and apathetic in our Christian walks? And how often do we need another Christian, another brother or sister, to come alongside us and to give us that friendly, and maybe sometimes not so friendly, motivation or encouragement 
to light a fire under us so that we can begin to walk closer with Christ. So the first way the writer of Hebrews says that we're to watch for one another is that we're to motivate each other. We're to encourage one another. We are to stir one another up, prod one another up, stimulate one another up to love and good deeds. That's the positive way. But then the second way that we, I guess, not look out for each other, not care for each other, is a negative. Notice what he says there. Verse 25. Not, it's negative, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Now the ESV translated as neglecting. That's really a strong word in the, in the original language. It really means to abandon. Not abandoning. Not walking away from meeting together. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that there's a group of people in the church who'd made it a habit. As is the habit of some. The Greek word there, ethos, meaning it had become their pattern of life. It had become a rut, if you will, for them not to meet together, to stay away from church, to make it a habit in their lives to not join corporately in worship. It had become a habit. It had become a rut. It had become what was characteristic of their life, and we really don't know why. The writer of Hebrews right here doesn't tell us why this group of people were not meeting together. But we have two clues from the overall book of Hebrews. The first reason they may have not not met together is for persecution. Go down to verse 32 for just a moment. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He's basically saying, some of you for being a Christian have had your, your property confiscated, you've been thrown in jail, you've been persecuted, and it could have been that there was a group of people in that church that said, I'm not gonna go for that. I'm not going to identify with the church if it means I have to lose my property, I have to be persecuted, so I'm not going to meet together. I'm not going to identify with the church because I don't want to be persecuted. That could be one reason. Another reason that the writer of Hebrews tells us over and over again in the book of Hebrews is apathy. They were just apathetic. They were complacent. Hebrews 2.1, Therefore we must pay attention, much closer attention, to what we have heard lest we drift away. All throughout the book of Hebrews, the writers urging them, don't drift away, don't walk away, don't, don't become complacent. So, it's very easy to get in the habit of not going to church. And that habit becomes one Sunday, I miss here or there, then two Sundays, then a couple of months, then it's Easter in Christmas only, and the next thing you know, I'm drifting away. It's become my habit. It's become my rut. It's become my identity. And that's what the writer's saying here. That, that's what they're doing. They're, that's one way that you don't look out for each other as a church, by neglecting or abandoning the meeting together. But then here's the third thing, positive. He goes back to positive. But... Not neglecting to meet together, this is the habit of some, but, very strong but in the original language, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encouraging. Encouraging one another. That, that, that word shows up a lot in the book of Hebrews. It's the whole idea of encouraging one another. Back in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, the writer says, Take care, brothers 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There's that whole idea of falling away, drifting away, walking away. But in verse 13, but exhort, encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That word hardened there that the writer uses is where we get our word sclerosis, a hardening of the arteries, if you will. I'm not a doctor and I don't play one on television, but I do know that if you get the hardening of the arteries and you get bad cholesterol in your arteries, it can lead to strokes, it can lead to heart attacks. It's not a good thing to have a hardening of your heart, literally. And what the writer here is saying is that it's very easy for your spiritual heart to be hardened by sin if you don't daily get the encouragement of other believers. So one of the benefits for you being in church every week is you get the encouragement of the body of Christ coming alongside you to motivate you to to love and good deeds and to encourage you and to come alongside you and to equip you and to love you and to admonish you and to be there for you. So the very first reason why we should be active in attendance is that it's commanded very clearly there. Do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. Okay, here's secondly, a second reason. Being active in attendance gives you encouragement and fellowship in a fractured and isolated culture. Would you guys agree that we have a fractured and isolated culture? And a church family is a place where you can receive encouragement and fellowship. Listen to this proverb. I came across an interesting proverb, and I think it's the spirit of our age. Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Whoever isolates himself. You see a problem with isolation? This proverb saying when you isolate yourself, you're actually kind of being selfish. You're basically saying, I know how to live my life. I don't want any input from other people. It's me, myself, and I, and I'm okay. I'm going to isolate myself. And the proverb says, that's foolish. That is foolish. You're in danger of isolating yourself when you're not active in attendance. And in an already fractured and isolated culture, let's not give the culture more ammunition. Let's devote ourselves to fellowship and to building each other up and to encouraging each other in an isolated and fractured world. The early church was marked by a devotion to being together. Acts 2.42 They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching fellowship to the breaking of breads and the prayers that word devoted is a very strong word in in the book of acts it shows up over and over again it's the strong passionate desire that the people had to be together they they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching listening to to the apostles teaching they devoted themselves to fellowship being together sharing things in life they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread which we're going to do later on the Lord's Supper, and they devoted themselves to prayer. It was a devoted lifestyle. They were devoted to that. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. So in an isolated and fractured world, the church is the one place where you should receive fellowship and encouragement. And the proverb says don't isolate yourself. When you isolate yourself, You cut yourself off from the needed encouragement and fellowship that you get from the body of Christ. Now, here's a third reason. It follows Jesus' example. 
Luke 4.16. Now you may think this is just an incidental passage of Scripture. Luke 4.16, it's kind of telling the setup to really what's going to happen in the story. And you can kind of gloss over it and not pay attention to it and think, okay, that's just, that's just getting me to what's the real important stuff here. But notice what Luke 4.16 says. This is speaking about Jesus. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom. Now, what was the synagogue? The synagogue was the Jewish church. It was the gathering place where the Jews during Jesus' day met for church. They read the law. They sang psalms. It was the church. When did they meet? On the Sabbath day. Now, obviously, we don't have synagogues today, but what do we have? Church. And we don't meet on the Sabbath day. We meet on Sunday because it's the Lord's day, the day of his resurrection. So here's the principle. If it was Jesus' custom, it was Jesus' habit, it was good enough for Jesus to go to church every Sunday then how much more is it incumbent upon us to do that as well, to make it a priority? Now, some people may say, you know what? I, I, I agree with you, Sean. I should, I should make it a priority to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day and be active in attendance, but I'm just so busy. I've got so many things going on in my life. I'm just so busy. Let's think about Jesus for a minute. Can Jesus say, man, I'm busy. I've got all these fishermen I've got to deal with. I've got all these disciples I've got to deal with. Plus, I've got all these people I've got to heal. I've got all these miracles I've got to do. I've got to feed the 5,000 over here. I am really, really busy. And as a matter of fact, I've got to do my Father's work, which is really, really important. And as a matter of fact, I'm God, so I don't really need to go to church because I've got that thing figured out. Jesus doesn't do that, does it? It says, as was his custom, his pattern, he went to the house of worship on Sabbath. So if anybody could have pleaded he was busy, it was Jesus, and he would have had very legitimate reasons to do so. So we would make it a priority to be active in attendance on Sunday morning because it was the pattern of Jesus. What's the fourth? Fourthly, it enables you to hear God's word preached in person from real leaders who love you and can be there for you in times of need. 2 Timothy 4, 2-4. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, I love to listen to podcasts. I listen to Matt Chandler. I listen to David Platt. I listen to Arta Zerdi. I listen to Vody Bauckham. I listen to the White Horse Inn. I listen to Alistair Begg. There's nothing wrong with listening to pastors out there or watching television. But let me just tell you one thing. They're not my pastor. I can't call up Matt Chandler and say, Hey, Matt, I'm going to the hospital this week. Can you come visit me? I can't call up David Platt and say, David, Pastor David, um, I'm having marriage problems. Can you counsel me and Don in our marriage issues? They're not my pastor. Now, they're great teachers, and I love to listen to them preach. And you may have your favorite teachers and preachers that you either watch on TV or listen to on the radio or podcast. You may have your favorite people out there, and you could say, you know what? I don't need to be in church because I can just watch it at home. 
Or I can watch it on my screen, or I can listen to it on a podcast while I'm jogging. I don't need to be under the preaching of a real person because I can get that through technology. But let me just say this. I've been charged as your pastor to shepherd this particular flock, as well as our elders and our deacons and our growth group leaders and our teachers and everyone in leadership. And we have the responsibility to be there for you in times of need. I don't just preach to you the word on Sunday and then just go disappear off into the sunset. That would be a really nice gig. I just get to preach on Sunday and then the rest of the week I get to not do anything. But I've got to do counseling and marriage counseling and visiting people in the hospital and and fellowshipping and all the things that God has called me to joyfully do. And I take great joy in being there for your pastor. And so one of the advantages and one of the blessings of being here in church is that you get to hear the word preached from a live preacher who's not a podcast preacher who can actually be there for you when you call him up or you email him, or you need him to come pray with you, as well as our elders. And so I just really think it's important. There's this whole idea of the internet church is real popular right now. Do you realize there are internet churches where you don't ever have to step foot in a building? You can watch it on a screen. If you have, you can take communion in your own house with the the, the preacher. If you have a counseling question, you can email it in, you can Skype it in, you can FaceTime it in, or you can can do some type of, of instant messaging, but you never actually interface with another person, and you can have church that way. I'm not necessarily saying that's wrong, but I'm saying is that the most healthy and biblical way church is supposed to be? Or is it supposed to be where we're a body together? Being active allows you to hear preaching and teaching from a live person who has your best interest at heart, who can be there for you and love you and encourage you and not just preach at you. Fifthly, it allows you to regularly observe the two Christian ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, what's baptism? Baptism is an out- We're going to have a couple of baptisms in a few weeks. Baptism is an outward expression of what God has done on the inside of your life through the gospel. It's a, it's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So when you go under the water and come back up, you're picturing what Jesus did, dying on the cross and rising again. So it's a beautiful picture. But let me just say this. Baptism is not just for the person being baptized. It's for the church family to come alongside the person that's being baptized and say, we are welcoming you into our fellowship We are going to stand beside you. We're going to love you. We're going to encourage you. You're part of our family now, and we're going to walk with you, and we're going to be there with you. And you can't do that in the privacy of your own home. Also, think about the Lord's Supper. We're going to take that in just a few moments. 1 Corinthians 11, 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Some megachurches I've heard of don't celebrate communion in their worship services because it takes too much time. So they give a little packet on your way out of the wafer and the juice. The usher gives it to you, and I guess you can take it in the foyer, you can take it in your car, you can take it at home. They shuffle you in, they shuffle you out, and there's never the corporate mentality of let's take this together as a family. Why is it called communion? Because it means we commune vertically with Jesus because he's our Savior, but we also commune horizontally with one another as a family. I don't find anywhere in the scriptures a privatized taking of the Lord's Supper. It's always done in community. It's always done as in the context of a group or a church family. And so we've got this consumeristic privatized mentality that, that I can just kind of do these things on my own. And you can. But God has made you to be in fellowship and community. 
Sixthly, it prevents you from backsliding into sin and being imbalanced in your spiritual growth. It is very easy to backslide when you're not in church. Listen to Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who's the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part's working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul gives this metaphor of being like a small child tossed on the waves. And anytime some new thing comes down the pike, you're easily swept away in it. And if you're not in corporate worship or among the family of God, it is very easy. I can't tell you how many times in my ministry I've seen it. A person or a family is active in church and then they're away for a week and then they get away for a few weeks and then you make a phone call and and they say things like, well, we're not really mad at Emmanuel. We're not mad at anybody. It's just we've gotten the habit of not coming. And then it leads to guilt. And then guilt leads to complacency and the next thing you know, they're no longer to be found. They're not going anywhere. They're not going to another church because they're mad. They're just not going anywhere. And you can slip into backsliding. And guess what happens? When you're, when you're not around God's, when you're not hearing God's word preached on a weekly basis, when you're not participating in the fellowship of the body, when you're not observing baptism, participating in the Lord's Supper, when you're not surrounding yourself with the church family, you begin to backslide and you begin to make decisions that don't reflect the gospel. You begin to make compromises. You begin to justify your behavior. You begin to get swallowed up into heresy. And you begin to drift when you're not among God's people. I've seen it time and time again. You can get imbalanced. Now, I don't want to be legalistic here. I don't want to say you have to be in church every Sunday or or you're not a good Christian. I'm not saying that. I understand vacations. I understand sicknesses. I understand business trips. I understand all the issues why that. And and those things happen, and I'm not going to be legalistic. What I'm saying is the pattern of your life that I'm making it a top priority to be active in attendance so that I can be part of God's people. Now, here's the seventh one, and this is going to get me in trouble, but hopefully you understand what I'm saying. It's a strong indication of your salvation. 1 John 2.19, and let me explain it so there's no misunderstanding what I'm saying here, okay? 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. What is John talking about? He's basically saying this. There were fakers in the church who weren't genuinely saved. And when persecution came or when something happened, they left. And they never came back, showing that they were never part of the church in the first place. John, 1 John 3.14 says this. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now, here's here's where it may be the hard thing. I want to say this, but listen to me carefully so you don't take me out of context, and I will explain what I'm saying, okay? When you are inactive in church, it may possibly be an indication that you're not saved. Now, I said may possibly. I'm not dogmatic saying if you're out of church, you're not saved. I'm saying may possibly be an indication. Because how do you evidence your salvation? 
John says you do it by loving the brothers, by loving the sisters. How do you, how do you, how do, if you say you're a Christian and you don't even show up at church to love those that are brothers and sisters, then how can you even claim to be a Christian, what John's saying? One of the evidences that you're a Christian is that you love the brothers and that you want to be around them. And so what he's saying is, is that there's solid, when, when you're, there's, there's, there's power and solidarity. When you join the family of Christ and you're, you're part of it, there, there's, there's this whole idea that we're standing together and we're, and we're making a point to the watching world that we're part of the family. And John says that may be an indication of your salvation, may. Now, I'm not dogmatic and say if you miss church, you're not saved. Don't hear me say that. I'm just saying that it may be an indication of where your heart is. Now, these are seven blessings. Some of them may come as warnings. Now, I say these to you because I love you as your pastor. I'm concerned for your spiritual uh, welfare. I want you to be healthy. Now, let me give you two postscripts. Really, there's nine, but (laughs) it wasn't a biblical number, so I have two postscripts. No, I'm just joking. There's two postscripts. As I was working through this, I thought, you know what? There's two other things I need to say. So here's two postscripts, and I think these are important. Number one, there is no perfect church. If you're looking for a perfect church that has a perfect pastor with perfect elders and perfect deacons and perfect teachers and perfect children's programs and perfect youth pastor and perfect music ministry and perfect youth ministry and everything where your feelings are never going to get hurt and your toes are never going to get stepped on and and you're you're going to always have everything go your way, then don't walk through the doors of Emmanuel. I'll just warn you right now. This is not a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not a perfect pastor. As a matter of fact, I may actually hurt you inadvertently. I, I, hope, hopefully I won't do it on purpose. I may at times ignore you unknowingly. I may not pay attention to you. I may do something that frustrates you. You may not like my leadership at times. There may be things about me that just grate on you. And I'm just saying straight out, I'm not perfect. This church isn't perfect. And you're going to get hurt here. And guess what? You may hurt somebody else here. It goes both ways. There's no perfect church. And I hear a lot of people saying, man, man, if if that church was just this way, I would go there. If those people just were not hypocrites, and they give all these excuses why they won't come to church because what really they're doing is they're looking for the perfect church. Now let me give you a quote from Charles Spurgeon because I think it's awesome. I love this quote. Charles Spurgeon said this, If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined it one at all. At that moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I became a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Do you hear his heart? And the church has got warts and all. It's got imperfections. It's got, you know, we're sinners that have issues. We've got baggage. We, we're, we're not perfect, and we're, we're going to disappoint. We're going to sin. And Charles Spurgeon says, as, as bad as it is, with all of its warts and all, it's still the dearest place on earth. Because, let me say this, the church is the bride of Christ. The church is Jesus' most prized possession. You better be careful what you say about the church. Because what you say about the church reflects the Savior of the church and how he feels about the church. Jesus gave his life for the church. Jesus bought the church with his blood. And he loves his bride. So we should love his bride as well. Caveat number two. Postscript number two. We may not have this kind of freedom to worship publicly like this for very long. So let's enjoy it while it lasts. 
Remember what I just read in Hebrews about confiscating property and being put in prison and being persecuted? That's going on in North Korea right now. It's going on in Iraq. It's going on in Sudan. It's going on in Somalia. It's going on in places all around the world. There is no public gathering of Christians in an air-conditioned building where you can pull up and park in a parking lot and have your services announced on the newspaper, have a public radio program, broadcast your services on the Internet, invite your friends. They don't have that because if they did, they would get killed. They've got to meet underground. And let me just say this. How dare we How dare we, who live in that type of freedom, not enjoy the blessing of that while our brothers and sisters around the world are dying for what what we would enjoy? There are people underground this morning, around the world, or maybe even tonight, depending on time zones, that don't have the privilege that we have to walk into a place like this. In the book, Insanity of God, which I encourage you to read if people are scared off by the entitled, Don't be scared off by the title. It's a missionary book about missionaries. Those of you that read it say it's awesome. Here's what he said. Don't ever give up in freedom what we would never have given up in persecution. Now, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I'm a pastor and the son of a pastor. But I will say this. There may come a day when we can't freely worship like this as Emmanuel Baptist Church. I'm not saying it's going to come anytime soon. I'm not saying I know when that happens. There just may come a day. And so while we have the freedom to do it, let's do it and enjoy it. Let it be a blessing to come. Like David said, it's a blessing, it's a joy to come to the house of the Lord while we have a place of worship where we can corporately identify ourselves publicly without fear of being raided or arrested or persecuted. Let's enjoy that freedom because we may not have it very long. We don't know what God's plan is for America. We don't know what God's plan is. He may extend it out or he may cut it short. He's sovereign over that. But right now he's given us a period of blessing, an open window for free worship. So as a church, as a body, what I want us to do this morning is joyfully celebrate the Lord's Supper because Jesus bought us with his blood. He paid for us on the cross and he's joined us together as his body of believers. And so I want us to come joyfully to the Lord's table this morning. And so I want us to commune vertically with Jesus. But I also want us to commune horizontally as the body of Christ and realize that the mark of a healthy Christian is your active in attendance. So let me ask you to pray as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning. Father, thank you that you've called us out of your You've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You've created us by your word to be your people, the church. And Jesus, you bought us with your blood to be your bride. And we even look at the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus, and the first thing that John sees in the new heavens and the new earth is the church which shows us how important the church is to you, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, if the church is important to you, it should be important to us. So give us grace this morning to 
make it a priority to be active in attendance. Let us not become legalistic and make it a drudgery, but Lord, let it be a joy like David. It was a joy. I was glad when they said, let us go up to the house, Lord. Lord, let it be something that we look forward to because we do receive that encouragement. We do get to experience the, the, the joy of not being isolated and, and Lord's Supper and, and baptism and the life of the church and we, and we just get to be under, under good, solid preaching and just get to fellowship and, and Lord, help us to, to be able to experience that by your grace. Lord, my prayer specifically, a specific prayer is for those that are connected with Emmanuel that haven't been here in a long time. Father, for whatever reasons, I don't know their spiritual condition, but Father, as their shepherd, I'd weep. And Father, you know, we've tried as elders to reach out and to to make phone calls and to make visits, but Father, I I don't know why. Would you help us to find the straying sheep and to bring them back? I pray for those that are not active in attendance that call Emmanuel home, that you'd bring conviction upon their hearts to be reconnected. And Lord, they'd see the blessing of fellowship, the blessing of being a part of a church family. Lord, they wouldn't feel guilty, but you would take that guilt away and renew it with repentance that leads to change. So as we come before your table this morning, Lord Jesus, help us to do it joyfully as a church family. And we pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.